In Matthew chapters 8 and 9 and Mark chapters 2 through 5, we read an account of several of the miracles of Jesus. In these chapters, Jesus heals the sick, calms the sea, casts out devils, and we see him as a healer and as a commander. But the miracles of Jesus point us to an even greater reality about our Savior, and that is that Jesus is the one who is authorized on earth to forgive sin, to cleanse us. Therefore, the lesson of these chapters is that Jesus is the Redeemer promised in the Old Testament, the bridge between God and man. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Doctrine. This is Lesson 10, Thy Faith Hath Made Thee Whole. And I don't think there's any more quintessential lesson that we could teach about the life of the Savior and His mission than this one because we're talking about the miracles of Jesus. Most people, when they, when they think of Jesus and His life, th- these are the images that they summon. The images of Jesus walking forth among the sick and among those possessed, perhaps, of devils or uh, calming the sea. These are the passages that, perhaps more powerfully than just about anything other than uh, the stories of the crucifixion, summon for us the images of the power of Jesus and what he, what he does symbolically for us every day. Uh, a couple of questions from listeners. One is from Bill. He says, uh, in your current podcast, I think your interpretation of one passage misses a clarification given in the Book of Mormon. I'm talking about Matthew 6, in which Christ is teaching not to worry about what to put on or what to eat, etc. You applied this to people in general. Although in 3 Nephi chapter 13, it's clear the Savior turned to his 12 disciples and addressed them in this passage, and then turned back to the multitude to continue his, ser- his sermon in 3 Nephi 14. Uh, Bill, you're exactly right, and thank you so much for that clarification. That does add an additional element to it. I would add that in this particular point in Matthew, uh, as, as contrasted to the, the gospel of 3 Nephi, we, we know that Jesus, at least in the chronological, if the story of Matthew is chronological, has not yet called his 12 disciples. So when it, when it talks about the disciples in this chapter, uh, it seems clear that it's talking about everyone. Now, the Bible is often, these, these gospel accounts are often not chronological, so it is possible that Christ had already called the Twelve and that he does the same thing uh, in his mortal ministry as he does with the Nephites, that he turns to his Twelve or he turns to a, a select group of disciples and, and makes it clear that he's only talking to them. So we have a contrast here between the Matthew account and the Third Nephi account in the way that Jesus presents this specific doctrine. And the way you point that out is right on. And I would suggest that the difference in the two accounts gives us a little bit of ambiguity that we can still ask ourselves the question, is it possible that this applies to me and not just the 12 disciples of Jesus? And if it does apply to me, again, I don't have an answer. This is one of those questions that's worth asking that uh, the, where the question is more interesting than the answer. Is it possible that this could apply to me? And if so, what would it mean? Thank you, Bill, so much for your question. Another question comes from Anne, and she asks, Is there a difference between Matthew, the disciple, 
and Levi, the disciple who seems also like a tax collector, and the author of the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, so thank you for that question. The answer is, uh, of course, we don't know. This, all of this happened 2,000 years ago, and it's impossible to say with certainty now exactly what's going on. However, Matthew is referred to uh, in his own gospel by the, by the name of Matthew. And in the accounts of Mark and Luke, Matthew is referred to as Levi. Uh, it seems clear that Levi was Matthew's name before being renamed by Jesus. Jesus renamed several of the disciples, and it's possible or even likely that that's what he did with Matthew. So Matthew means gift of God, and Levi is obviously named after one of the sons of Jacob. So he has this very common Jewish name. Now John, uh, the Baptist, when he was preaching, the, the publicans or these tax collectors came to him and said, okay, if we're supposed to bring forth fruit, meat for repentance, what does that mean for us? And John's reply to the publicans was, don't exact more than is your due. In other words, be a fair tax collector. And whether Matthew was one of the disciples of John the Baptist or not, it seems obvious that he had received this advice. So he's, he's one of the honest tax collectors, and Jesus appears while well, he sat at custom, so whatever house he's at, and he says, follow me. And just like Peter and Andrew had done, they straightway left their nets. From the account, you can see that Matthew immediately arose and, and followed him. So he stopped what he was doing. He left his presumably lucrative line of work, and uh, or at least it could have been lucrative if he was at all dishonest, but probably was not, and followed Jesus. Now, did Matthew, uh, did Levi slash Matthew write the Gospel of Matthew? There's some controversy about this. The consensus among scholars is that he didn't, but what do scholars know? Um, he Matthew, the disciple, probably wrote something, and the belief is that the author of the Gospel of Matthew wrote originally in Aramaic. So there may have been there may have been a gospel originally written by Levi Matthew who who would have had access to the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, which uh, which it seems clear the Gospel of Matthew is largely based on. And what Matthew tries to do is take the events in Mark and show that they're fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. Now, did the did some later author come along, take this Aramaic gospel and turn it into a Greek gospel um, somewhere around the end or the last quarter of the first century? Um, or did or or did he just translate it into Greek? That's unknown, but it it seems from the way that the the New Testament manuscripts were discovered and where they were discovered, there was a community of people following uh, the disciple the Apostle Matthew later on in the first century somewhere near Antioch and they were made up of largely Jews who didn't consider there to be any any conflict between Judaism and Christianity they considered them the same religion they, they considered following Jesus to be an extension of Judaism um, which was not very controversial just after the life of Jesus, but became more and more controversial as time went on. It became the the differences between the two religions began to be more clearly defined as more Gentiles were converted without ever having uh, worshipped God in the way that Jews did. And so uh, this community of Jews become Christians, followers of Matthew. Um, all this all this is sort of conjecture because 
you can learn a lot from where these manuscripts are found, what parts of manuscripts are present where they're found uh, in Antioch versus Egypt versus Greece, and um, what they were emphasizing, what teachings were only present there, and what changes crept into those manuscripts that didn't creep in in other traditions. So this is a reconstruction, but that's what we know about the Gospel of Matthew, that uh, he, he may or may not have been the original author, but there is an author of Matthew who wrote his book based on Mark trying to convince Jews that Jesus was the God of the Old Testament, and there may have been uh, a, one of his followers who embellished and translated into Greek later on. I hope that answers your question. Thank you for that. If you have a question, please write to me at gt at gospeltoctrine.com. Uh, and remember, please, to give us your five-star reviews on Facebook and on iTunes. Those help more listeners to find us, and we appreciate all of the comments and the positive reviews that we receive. I feel like noting at this point that there are only a few months out of the four years we study the standard works, there are only a few months that we study the Gospels, and then again briefly in the book of Third Nephi. Do we study the actual life of Christ? And so uh, this is one of those times of life where rather than looking forward to what's coming or dwelling in the past, it's important to, to dwell in the present and realize that we, are, we have the privilege right now of studying and learning about those scriptures which, which deal directly with the life of Jesus. And to truly immerse yourself, take advantage of this time, truly immerse yourself in the scriptures and pray and study and, uh, and learn about things that aren't just the scriptures, read books about the scriptures. Along those lines, some of the resources that we'll, we'll use today, uh, I've mentioned this many times, but one of my favorite podcasts is Exploring My Strange Bible. And that, in, in that podcast, there's an extended series that deals with the book of Matthew. Uh, lately, I've become familiar with the new book, Horizontal. This, is, this was given to me by a friend. He's in my ward. Thomas Mumford, and for many years an institute teacher, but uh, he didn't really write this book. He arranged it. It's it's called Horizontal Harmony of the Four Gospels in Parallel Columns, and all it is is an arrangement of the four Gospels uh, horizontally so you can compare. If, if you're reading one account of Jesus, for example, today's account of Jesus coming the, the Sea of Galilee, you can see what's different in each of the accounts and where it does not appear. And so you'll often see three accounts of the same story in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then an emptiness where John is. And then John will speak, uh, you know, a bunch is written, John, and then three empty columns with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, but that's a way of reading. If you want to read all the accounts of one story at once, this is a fantastic way to do it. And uh, you can find this book, I believe, on Amazon. Um, Brother Mumford gave me this this book personally, but I highly recommend it. And uh, he's a he's a wonderful teacher and a good friend. Also, don't forget that in your Gospel Library app, you have free access to Jesus the Christ by James E. Talmadge, and this is a sort of a narrative account of what happens in all of the Gospels with commentary, and it's presented as a story by one author rather than uh, you having to go to each individual gospel and collect it, and then it's reflected in a Latter-day Saint worldview. 
And so the, the doctrines are, as reflected by Jesus, are interpreted by an apostle of God. Very powerful, powerful book. If you've never read Jesus the Christ, take advantage during uh, these few months to do that. And it's, again, it's free. It's right on your tablet or your smartphone in your Gospel Library app or on, um, on LDS.org. Speaking of which, what a, what a wonderful change was announced this week as LDS.org is changing to churchofjesuschrist.org. Um, and when I read it, I, many of you don't know that my, my professional background originally was uh, a programmer. So I, my first career was working on the internet. And so I'm, I'm intimately familiar with just how difficult it must be to change the, the name of a website as complicated as LDS.org. So many resources there, so many internal links and references, and then externally for mormonnewsroom.org, which will now be changed as well. So to make this change is a huge, vast undertaking. And um, for me, when I, when I found it out, I, I was choked up because I, I understood how many people had gone to such great lengths to fulfill the words of a prophet, a prophet who had encouraged us to use the name of the church because God will, uh, it, when we do that, God will show his power. And he, he not only made the suggestion, but then gave a conference talk explaining his reasoning, which is um, per, an extraordinary thing for a prophet to do. And the fact that people leapt into that effort with in, in such a vast undertaking, and there are many other things that I'm that I'm not mentioning that are being done as well to fulfill using the name of the church. To see all of those efforts coming to fruition, and to anticipate the blessings that I know will follow from so many people following the the counsel of a prophet, is very encouraging and very inspiring to me. One more brief note before we jump right into the content of the lesson, and that is, it seems like uh, prayer is a theme that is something we should we should talk about in the scriptures that we've that we've discussed recently. First of all, we we just ta- finished talking about the Lord's Prayer, and something that struck me about the Lord's Prayer is that it's all requests. It is the first half of the Lord's Prayer is requests about God's will. And the second half is about what we need, but there is no um, thank you. You know, we we spend so much time saying, "Okay, we've got to spend this much of our prayer saying thank you." It is true we should thank God in our prayers. I'm not trying to say we shouldn't. What I'm saying is we shouldn't feel guilty about making requests of God. God is there to hear our pleas, and Jesus makes that very clear in the Lord's Prayer. Secondly, um, the one of the most powerful prayers in all of Scripture is Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, saying, God, if thou wilt, let this cup pass from me. Now, Jesus, I don't know exactly what he knew by this time, but it had to be just about everything that he would ever know. Jesus had been receiving constant revelation throughout his life. So he knew that he had to perform the atonement, and yet here he is at the moment, at the very brink of it, asking that it not happen. And so the lesson that I'm taking from it, one, of, one small lesson from this, from this treasure trove of lessons is that it is not sinful, it's not wrong 
to pray for something that is against the will of God. Jesus himself was doing it. What Jesus was, was saying was, I know what has to be done, but I'm, I'm hoping that I'm wrong. And he was wrong. And the, the most important part of that prayer was, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. So Jesus didn't receive the answer that he wanted to his prayer. And so I, I hope we'll keep that in mind as we pray. It's okay for us to pray for those things, to pray as the, as the Lord's Prayer says, lead us not into temptation or, or another way of rendering that. Subject, don't let us be subjected to the trials that are coming, but if thou wilt, uh, deliver us from evil. If thou wilt, bring, bring those trials upon us anyway, then deliver us from evil. So it's okay for us to want to escape the, the difficult parts of life. And uh, it's also okay for us to ask for God to be with us, as long as we remember that his will is so much more important than our own, and that God is happy to respond to requests in prayers. He's our Father, and he wants to give us all the good gifts of life and of life to come. So in Matthew chapter 8, it's important to remember that uh, Matthew has arranged his, the chronology of his stories a little differently than Mark and Luke. And so some of these accounts are put right together in a row. And then, for example, the calling of the Twelve, as I mentioned earlier, that may not have been chronological. The calling of the Twelve occurs later. And right after the Sermon on the Mount, then Jesus immediately appears and heals a leper. And and there's a reason that Matthew has arranged his account this way. We'll talk a little bit about why he... uh, why he puts things in the order that he does. But the point is, we've just finished Jesus' most powerful lesson, most important sermon, and then these are the events that immediately follow. And there's probably some purpose of Matthew behind that. So Matt, Matt, uh, Jesus appears immediately and, appeal, uh, and heals a leper. And the, the leper appeals to Jesus and says, Lord, if thou wilt... So let's talk a little bit about leper and what that meant. Today it has a very specific meaning. It's a a horrible disease. It's a disease for which there is no cure. Uh, And just like in uh, in the case with so many other medical conditions, the the terminology doesn't have an exact meaning when when used in ancient manuscripts. Uh, As as seems clear from the book of uh, Leviticus, when leprosy is described, it could, it could mean any number of mostly skin conditions. And these conditions are described in different terms. Some of them have boils attached. Some of them have hairs growing out of them, and those are described. Some of them have blood issuing from them or, or, other, or, or a weeping. And so leprosy is a, a broad term covering many skin conditions. So we don't know exactly what was wrong with this man. What we do know is this. His skin condition would have rendered him unclean ritually. And we're going to talk about ritual impurity uh, in just a moment. But it would have, let, let's first understand what it would have meant for him to have this condition. Um, you can read Leviticus 13 if you want to know more about what his life was like. But I'm going to, I'm going to just read you two verses. Leviticus chapter 13, verses 45 and 46. The leper in whom the plague is, his clothes shall be rent, his head bare, he shall put a covering upon his upper lip, and shall cry, unclean, unclean. 
All the days wherein the plague shall be in him, he shall be defiled. He is unclean, he shall dwell alone. Without the camp shall his habitation be. Now when this when this scripture was given, all of Israel dwelt in a camp. But um, without the camp, without the city, away from people, he's alone. If anybody comes near him, he has to say unclean, unclean. No one can even come close to this man. Let, so the idea of touching a leper is absolutely foreign to anyone reading the, the Gospel of Matthew. Math, so I, I mentioned, I went into such detail about the Gospel of Matthew before so you could understand Matthew's writing to Jews. So for Jews, it wasn't, that it, this kind of thing did not need to be explained. A leper arrives in front of Jesus. But to us, it kind of does. So here's, here's a man that has to be separated to such an extent that all of his clothes had to be torn in pieces and he had to be given new clothes that would identify him from a great distance as somebody you did not want to go close to. The only people that could go close to a leper were other lepers. And if there weren't any of those in the city in which he lived, he, as, as it says in Leviticus 13, he shall dwell alone. This is the kind of person that has just appeared in front of Jesus. And he says to Jesus, this is, this is heartbreaking. He says, uh, if thou, Lord, if thou wilt, thou, count, <laughs> thou canst make me clean. And he doesn't say, Jesus, if, if you, so if, if thou wilt means if you want to. He doesn't say, if you, if you have the ability to heal my disease, then please do so. What he says is, if you want to. And he doesn't say, heal my disease. He says, if you want to cleanse me. So this man considers himself dirty. He considers himself not just ritually impure, but spiritually impure. So that that leads us into our discussion of, of ritual impurity. And the book of Leviticus goes into great detail as to the kind of things that would make a person ritually impure. What that means is, number one, you, you're taking part. First of all, there's, the, there's this class of people in ancient Israel, the, the priests, who are authorized by God to go into the temple and serve him there, perform the sacrifices, carry the animals and the blood, etc., enter the temple or simply work at the altar, and they have to be, have to be, have to be ritually clean. And then there are the general population who interact with the priests, and in order for the priest to be able to touch you, to come close to you, th- th- you also have to be clean there because your impurity, if you're ritually impure, can infect the priests, and then they won't be able to go into the temple. And the, so some of the things that would cause this are leprosy, as we've discussed. But also, um, the, the priests themselves, the, the priests weren't celibate men. They, they could be married. And one of the things that would render them ritually unclean was having sexual relations with their wives. So if a priest engaged in this activity, which was not wrong, then he was ritually impure until evening. And then he had to cleanse himself, he had to wash, and then he could be clean at sunset. Um, so if the priest, or if the priest interacted with a dead body or with blood, he was rendered ritually impure. There, there were certain uh, reminders of mortality, of earthiness, um, and things that had special meaning, like the bodily fluids involved in 
reproduction. Contact with any of these things rendered someone impure. And someone who is impure touching a person, touching a seat, if you sat on a chair and then someone else sat on it, you could pass your impurity to them. So ritual purity was very important because the priests, when they went into the temple, they had to know that they hadn't interacted with anything that was impure. And ritual impurity was infectious, meaning if you were impure, your impurity could spread. No matter how pure the priest was, ritually speaking, he couldn't pass that to you. He didn't go into the temple, receive so much uh, blessing from God, etc., that he could come out and render you clean by touching you. You had to follow the, the prescriptions in the book of Leviticus if you wanted to be ritually clean, and it didn't flow in the other direction. Impurity flowed outward, and purity flowed inward. So that, that is the context in which the, Jesus has this encounter with the leprous man. And so we're going to read a little bit about that. We're going to read part of this account, and maybe it'll become clear. This is only four verses long. It'll become clear how taboo-breaking Jesus' actions were. So the first book, the first verse of Matthew chapter 8, when he was come down from the mountain. So the Sermon on the Mount just ended, and here comes a leper. Behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, Thou canst make me clean. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. So Jesus, so this is is one of the most profound lessons about Jesus that exist. And unless we're aware of the facts around ritual impurity, then we don't understand why. But anyone, any priest, no matter how holy, would have recoiled at the idea of touching this leper because touching this leper could not only, would, would guaranteed, would be a guaranteed way of spreading, of receiving his ritual impurity, but it also was a possibility of receiving his leprosy itself. If there was some contagious disease that was physically contagious, then you could also receive that and become like this leper. And the fact that, first of all, the leper had to have an extraordinary amount of courage to do what he did, because as the book of Leviticus says, his normal, his normal day consisted of him seeing people coming and having to shout, unclean, unclean, so that they would not come near him. But somehow he summons the courage to go unto Jesus and to say, Lord, if, if you're willing, if, if, if you somehow can find it in your heart, to cleanse me, I know you're able to do it. And I don't know about you, but there have been many times in my life when I have thought, um, God, I am I'm, I'm not worthy to pray, let's say, or I arrive before at the, at the feet of God in prayer, and the, I can't ask for the blessings that I feel like I really want because I don't feel like God really wants to give them to me. God doesn't want to listen to me right now. Who am I? Look at all, look at the terrible person that I am. Now, some of the things that cause ritual impurity, touching a dead body, for example, uh, weren't sinful at all. And you still were ritually impure. And some of the things were sinful and you became ritually impure. 
But ritual purity was not an exact uh, an analogy for sinfulness and a spiritual impurity. Nevertheless, the Jews obviously saw somebody who had received leprosy as having been cursed from God. And this man felt, and the fact that you have to say unclean, unclean anytime comes near you had to reinforce that point. This man had to feel like God didn't want anything to do with him. And yet somehow he found the courage to arrive at Jesus's feet within the length of, within the reach of Jesus's arm. Now he didn't reach out and touch Jesus, but he put himself within the length of Jesus's arm so that if Jesus chose, he could touch him. And then he had the courage to ask. And what did Jesus do? So what what anyone would expect from a, an observant rabbi would be, no, I'm not going. I'm not going to touch you. You're unclean, and I have to remain pure. So now, uh, if you if you've been following us for a while, you will, will have heard the podcast when we our very first Isaiah episode when we talked about the idea of holiness. So the idea of holiness in in Judaism in ancient Judaism is tied into this uh, belief of, around ritual purity. And holiness meant something that was kept apart. So the temple, this originally this, this tabernacle carried around in the desert, inside of which was the Ark of the Covenant, and on top of which was the, uh, the imaginary mercy seat where God himself would dwell. And the Jews, when they, whenever they moved the tabernacle, they could see the Ark of the Covenant, and they could see the place of the mercy seat. And otherwise, it was covered up in the Holy of Holies. And this, this holiest place, in order to arrive there, you had to be free of all impurities. And so, in the sixth chapter of Isaiah, we have this account. And this is what's called a throne theophany. This is the first vision of a prophet when he's originally called, and and it was common during this time. Isaiah's is one of the most dramatic examples, but we also have one from Ezekiel and one from Jeremiah, and in the Book of Mormon, we have one from Lehi. The Book of Mormon begins with a throne theophany where a prophet is called into the presence of God and is surrounded by his holiness and sees all these beings, these angels or other spirits, what are called in the book of Job, the sons of God, surrounding the throne of God, worshiping God. In the case of Isaiah chapter 6, they're saying, holy, holy, holy. Now, as we remember, when something's repeated three times in, in Hebrew, it is the absolute utmost. They're saying, glory to God on high, in the highest. God is the holiest in all creation. And immediately, Isaiah's reaction is, I'm going to die. I'm in the presence of God, and look at how impure I am. And the, what follows is a, a very instructive episode that, that any time the idea of uncleanness sh- comes up, you should summon this into your mind, which is one of the seraphim surrounding God, praising him, one of these angels, these powerful beings, picks up one of the coals from the from the uh, incense burner and brings it over and puts it on Isaiah's lips. And um, to me, this summons up the words of Alma when he says, when, we, when we're brought before the judgment bar of God, we'll have a bright recollection of all our guilt. And in that moment, we will want to uh, hide from the presence of God. So this is the reaction of Isaiah. And it's interesting because 
Um, the only difference between a sinner arriving at the presence of God and then being cast out forever and Isaiah arriving in the presence of God, having the same reaction, wanting to be separated, feeling like he's unworthy, um, is the humility of Isaiah saying, I'm impure, look at me, look at this people, and I need God to, to help me, and I'm going to, otherwise I'm going to perish. Then comes this coal that purifies Isaiah's lips and from there his entire body. And Isaiah learned something so important then, which is, our impurity may may be infectious, right? Ritual impurity may be transmitted from one to another, but the purity of God flows in the other direction. So the purity of priests, the ritual purity, has to be maintained for each ind- individual person. But the assumption is that even God himself can't make you pure. You have to make yourself pure. And what Jesus teaches at every turn, and, and, and at several points during the chapters we're about to go through, is that purity actually comes from God. We, we keep ourselves ritually pure, meaning it's, it's, it's this earthly approximation of heavenly purity, but it has nothing to do with whether God approves of us. And Jesus is saying, I'm willing to break through the barriers that you think separate you from God. I, I don't care about your impurity because my purity is so great that it spreads outward from me. And when Jesus reaches out and touches this leper and says, I will, I am willing to cleanse you. He doesn't say, I'm not capable of cleansing you, or my job is to heal your body. What he says is, I am willing. I do, I do want to cleanse you. Be clean. And immediately his leprosy falls away from him. So his skin disease is cured. He physically heals him. But what he also does is he breaks through this this bubble that the man has had to maintain around himself his entire life or forever, for whatever extended period he's had this disease. He breaks immediately through that bubble and touches his skin and says, I'm not worried about receiving your impurity. I don't care about the fact that you think you're unclean. I'm capable of making you clean. In fact, I'm going to do something for you that you could never do for yourself, which is take your uncleanness away. And this is, this is what Jesus does again and again and again. And I'm, uh, I feel like I should mention now the, the chapter we keep bringing up, Jeremiah chapter 31, where... Uh, Jeremiah prophesies that God is going to make a new covenant, and, and the way that he will write his covenant on our hearts is by forgiving our sins. In other words, we, we, don't, we don't earn the forgiveness. We don't go out and buy the forgiveness. God is going to do a work in which he creates a people who are going to walk in his law, in his statutes, as he says at the, near the end of Ezekiel 36. He's going to do it. Our obedience is actually his doing, and our holiness is his doing. And so often we feel like, I'm not worthy to arrive even at the feet of God. And and it took great courage for this leper to arrive at Jesus' feet and worship him. But once he did, and he was humble enough, as Isaiah was, to say, uh, "If, if if you're willing, if you just want to, you can cleanse me. And Jesus said, I do want to. Now... 
we've talked about how Jesus is the temple. Um, Matthew has pointed this out. Jesus is Israel. Jesus is the temple in the sense that um, Jesus is reenacting in his personal life. He's reenacting the history of Israel and is pointed out uh, Jesus walking back into the presence of God and taking our sins with him is exactly similar to how a high priest walks into the temple taking the blood of the lamb with him. And now we have another image of Jesus, which is Jesus is this coal which is burning in the temple. So Jesus is the temple itself. He is the Holy of Holies. And he's also the the coal burning in the temple that purifies. And all of this in just three verses. And uh, at the end of that at the end of that account, Jesus says, uh, tell no one, but show yourself to the priest. So the priest is going to find out the kind of man that Jesus is, but no one else. And we, we keep getting this, uh, this admonition from Jesus and usually followed by, but they didn't do that. They went out and showed everyone. So Jesus, a little bit later in these chapters, heals two blind men. And he says, please don't tell anyone. And they go out and they publish it. And that happens again and again and again. Jesus does a miracle, and he says, tell no one, and they tell everyone. What I think about this admonition is, this was Jesus' standard, uh, standard charge. At the end of healing anyone, he would probably say, most of the time, please don't tell anyone about this. And my personal take on this is that when Jesus was finally, the thing that finally brought Jesus to brought the fight against Jesus to an emergency status was when he raised Lazarus from the dead and it became publicly known that Jesus was capable of something like this. And before that time, Jesus wanted to keep his miracle secret, but it was a miracle of Jesus and specifically raising someone from the dead that made the uh, high priest in Jerusalem absolutely have to kill him. And that led immediately to his death within a week. So, Jesus is saying when he says, please don't tell anyone, he's saying, it's not my time yet. I don't, I don't want to bring all of these things to a head. I need to accomplish my ministry. And so there were probably many people that we don't hear about in the, in the Gospels who did receive this admonition and did not publish the miracle of Jesus. It's just the ones that didn't do that that we read about, I think. So anyway, that's, that's my, per, my personal take on how that works. And at this point, I'm not going to continue chronologically. We're going to leap forward a bit to chapter 9 because it, it goes thematically with what we've been talking about. So there's the woman. I want to talk now about the woman with the issue of blood. And uh, again, in modern terms, we don't know exactly what she suffered with, but it seems, uh, it seems likely that this was some sort of menstrual problem that this woman... Uh, could, was constantly issuing blood. And, and in, in Mark and Luke, we have the additional detail that she'd spent everything she had on doctors to try to heal her. So again, the idea of ritual impurity. So this, this is the kind of ailment which would have rendered her ritually impure. And what that would have meant was no observant Jew, no, no religious man would have been willing to marry her. We don't know whether she was married or not, but if she weren't when this issue of blood began, then her choices would have been limited to somebody who didn't care about being rendered ritually impure. 
every day. And she was ritually impure every day. For 12 years, she had never once been ritually pure. And again, we have a story of someone who's willing, uh, in spite of what they would have perceived as personal unworthiness, and certainly a separation and loneliness, vast loneliness that we can hardly even understand, had the courage to arrive at Jesus' feet. And in her case, she didn't even want to gain Jesus' notice. She just said within herself, she thought, if I can just touch, now what we have uh, translated as the hem of his garment, and then I, then I will be made whole. And that's what happens. She arrives, uh, she arrives at, G- at Jesus's, in, in Jesus' vicinity. Jesus is on his way to perform another miracle, and she touches his clothing, and, and immediately she knows that she's been healed. So we're going to talk about this for a minute. First of all, um, the, the surface story is amazing. She, she just, and, and, the, and the way that we would read it as a modern reader would be, all she had to do was touch the, the hem, the outermost bit, just anything having to do with Jesus, and she was healed. And that's a powerful message. But there's more that we could take from this if we understand a little bit more about the culture. First of all, the, the word that's translated as hem is tzitzit, which is uh, an Old Testament, uh, the, well, the word, I'm sorry, the Greek word that's translated as hem is krespedon, which is a, a, which is a border or a tassel. And the Old Testament equivalent is the tzitzit. And that is a, that is a, a statutory um, decoration that is actually in the book of Deuteronomy, among other places, that th- this, this tassel would be created in the borders of a garment so that we could always remember the Torah. So Jesus, as an observant Jew, now he actually criticized the Pharisees for making these things so visible that it was obvious to everyone how spiritual they were. There are a few things that Jesus criticized more often than trying to appear to be spiritual where there was no depth of belief and uh, where there was no humility underneath. That is probably the thing that Jesus criticized the absolute most and had the least patience for and the thing that angered him the most. But nevertheless, would Jesus have had these tassels on the corners of his, of his garment? Yes, probably. So it seems likely to assume. Now, the part of this assumption is that uh, what modern Jews do today is in some degree unchanged from what Jews did 2,000 years ago. That assumption is probably not 100% true. Nevertheless, the fact that this is mandated in the Torah uh, makes it likely that there was some similar practice. So the if you look at an ultra-Orthodox especially, but even Orthodox Jews will have visible tassels uh, on the four corners of where their shirt hangs down. And uh, you can see those coming out. And these have a specific form depending on what rabbinical tradition that particular Jew chooses to uh, believe, how the knots, the knots are intricately tied to, to in some cases, represent the 613 commandments of the Torah, etc. So what Jesus's tassels would have looked like uh, isn't exactly clear, but it is probable that this is what this woman was um, focusing on. So now what we have is her saying, instead, I'm just going to touch the outermost piece of his clothing and that'll be enough. 
Another possibility is that she said, I'm going to lay hold on this proof of this man's belief. And while the word hem may not have been accurately rendered, I think the word garment is perfectly appropriate. What she did was she laid hold on that part of Jesus's garment, the mark on his garment that reminded him of his command, of his covenants and of the commandments. And in that perspective, we see exactly what this woman thought was, if I can just gain a small piece, just come in contact with the smallest piece of the holiness, again, that word holiness of this man, she believed she, and, and perhaps she got the idea from the book of Isaiah. Perhaps it came from somewhere else. Perhaps it came from the Spirit. She believed that the holiness of Jesus was enough that rather than her uncleanness infecting him, his holiness would be enough, would be contagious enough to infect her and cleanse her. And just, just touching it was enough to do exactly that. Physically first. Physically was the was the way in which she became aware of it, but spiritually for all of us. And Jesus, now then something interesting happens that we don't read about in Matthew, but we do read about in Mark and Luke. And this is, this is, where, I, uh, this is where I benefit from this horizontal harmony of the four Gospels. You can see that these things written in four columns straight across, so you can just look to the side and see that in one of the other accounts it's treated a bit differently. And so in Mark and Luke, Jesus notices that virtue, as it's called, has gone out of him. Well, and here's another resource that I want to talk about every so often, and that's BibleHub.com. If you're reading the scripture on BibleHub, uh, it used to be when I was in college, for example, and I thought, oh, how does this guy know in, in, a, in a Sunday school lesson somebody mentions the Greek or the Hebrew? And I thought, how does this guy know? How does this woman know? What the Greek word is, that's so cool. You know, they must really be learned and now it's so fast. If you're on BibleHub.com, you can be reading that, that verse with Greek and English side by side within 10 seconds if somebody mentions uh, a, a verse in the Bible. And so it's so powerful. It's so wonderful to have this resource at your fingertips. So you have Bible.com pulled up on your phone or on your tablet, and then you just click the, the number of the verse, and then you click up in the uh, navigation, you click the Greek or the GRK, and it takes you to that verse in Greek, and then you click on the Greek word, and then if you click on the link to Strong's Concordance, you can see everywhere that word is used in the, in the New Testament and all of the different shades of meaning that it has. And so uh, in this case, the virtue, the word virtue, is from dynamin, which uh, obviously we will recognize as the root of the word dynamo. It means, instead of virtue, it means actually power. And if we click into the Strong's Concordance, we learn that it's the power that something has by virtue of its nature. And it's not just good things that can have power, it's also sin. Sin can exert its power over us by virtue of its nature to corrupt us. And in much the same way, Jesus, by virtue of just being who he is, has power. And what this woman did when she laid hold on the fringe of his garment, on this tassel, she, she connected with that dynamin within Jesus, the power that could infect her and cleanse her. And so what he sensed wasn't that virtue had left him and in the sense that he had less left over, but that she had made this intimate connection with the power that he had by virtue of being himself. 
and that power was the power to cleanse. All she had to do was arrive at his feet, much as this leper had, with the courage to say, I'm unclean, but I know, and, I, and, I, and I'm totally incapable of solving this problem myself. This is, not the pro- this is not the kind of problem that is within the realm of my power to heal, to resolve. And so the only thing I can do, uh, this is what I've been praying for. Jesus is in, now he's finally come in my neighborhood. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do whatever it takes to be there on the day that he walks by. And I'm going to touch the hem of his garment. I'm going to grab that tassel. I'm going to connect in whatever way possible with the, the reminder that Jesus has of his covenants. And in that way, I'm going to tap into the power that exists in him by nature of him being who he is. And that power instantly cleanses me. She knew that. She knew it. She had to know it because she sacrificed to be there. Another question that comes into my mind as I read this passage is, how do we know what happened to this woman? How do we know what she thought? How do we know when she knew she was cleansed? And there's only a couple of possibilities. One is that immediately after it happened, uh, one of the disciples said, hey, now, wait a minute. You know, they, they asked Jesus at the time. They, he said, wait, who touched me? And they said, what do you, what do you mean, Jesus? Ever look around you. You're in the middle of a crowd. What do you mean, who touched you? And he, he looks back and he sees this woman. And he says, um, you know, thy faith hath made thee whole. This is where the, the title of the, of the lesson comes from. And then one of the disciples immediately realized something significant had happened and went back and interviewed the woman. What I think is more likely is the second possibility, that this woman then became a follower of Jesus and became known for being such. And so when the Gospels were being written, anybody doing research would have gone to this er- the areas where Jesus taught and they would have said, who had experiences with Jesus? Tell me about them. And this woman would have been somebody that would be pointed out. Well, I know a woman who was healed of an issue of blood. She's told everyone about it. You should go talk to her. And so she would have, she became in that moment a disciple of Jesus. Jesus changed not only her present, but he changed her future. Her whole life then was, and this is me imagining and speculating, but I think it's, I think it's interesting to think about. Uh, her whole life then became a testimony to the healing power of Jesus. And anybody wanting to know about Jesus, all they had to do was talk to her. And she could tell them, oh yeah, I, I had given everything to try to resolve this problem myself. And I had gone to doctor after doctor, and it was impossible for me. I had reached the limit of what I knew how to do and given up. And, and in one second, Jesus changed all that and transformed it and turned it around. And we've, we've only touched on a couple of small parts of this, these scriptures, and yet already we've learned such powerful lessons. So before we go on to the, to the parts we've neglected and skipped over, um, let me just say that these two brief, brief stories teach us so much about what the, the holiness of Jesus, the fact that he holds his power within himself, and that when we think our sins are too much for him to overcome, because they are too much for us to overcome, then that's, that's the lesson here is that do whatever you can to get as close to Jesus as you can, to, within, to, to put yourself within the reach of his arm. And then if you think that he's not going to reach out and touch you, you're so wrong. That's not the way Jesus thinks. 
He doesn't think that your impurity is going to spread to him. He knows that his purity, he is the coal on the altar of the temple. He knows his purity is enough to cleanse you. But the one thing he can't do is cleanse you against your will. It's, it's the people who ask. It's the people who reach out and hold that tassel that he can cleanse. So have that belief. Know that you say, Jesus, if you're willing, if you want to, you can cleanse me. That he will reply, I do want to. That's what I'm here for. That's why I was born. Okay, one of the, one of the amazing uh, stories about Jesus is this Roman centurion who arrives and without reading it, this is the next thing that happens in uh, Matthew chapter 8. But he says, he says, Jesus, I have a servant who's sick. And Jesus says, all right, I'll come to him. And, and, and the Roman centurion says, no, I'm not worthy that you should come into my house. But I know how authority works. I'm a lord over small things. And I understand that you're a lord over great things. When I command... It gets done whether I'm there or not. In fact, that's the way that my authority works is I tell people to do things. I don't do them myself. And so I recognize in you that kind of power except over much greater things. And so what I'm asking you to do is not come to my house and heal my servant. Is just say that it gets done and I know it will be. So that's, that's kind of the, the essence of what this centurion says to Jesus. And Jesus says, I haven't seen this much faith in all of Israel. And, and the reason he says that is not that the man believes Jesus can heal him or say the words. The reason Jesus says that is this Roman centurion has recognized something that no Jew has recognized yet, which is when, when Jesus exercises his authority, when he commands these devils to come out of someone, when he commands a disease to be made right, he is exercising authority over the very elements themselves. This Roman centurion has recognized that Jesus is God, and he has said as much. I don't need you to go anywhere. I just need you to say the words, and I know it will be done. No matter how far away it is, I know my servant will be just fine. And Jesus says, you've recognized something very important. The reason this is an interesting story is immediately thereafter, not immediately, but um, within within a few verses, Jesus gets into a ship. And he's on the water, sleeping in the boat, and a great storm arises. And this is in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, which is the, the intersection between two different climates. And so there can be violent storms. And these fishing boats, there, if you ever go to Israel, there's, a, there's a, uh, a museum where you can see a first century fishing boat. It is not a big boat. It's the size of a boat that you might go water skiing in, maybe, maybe twice that size. So it's twice as long, a little bit deeper, and it, it's meant to hold a large amount of fish, but uh, not so big that you wouldn't be worried about waves coming over the side. And, and in those days, waves coming over the side weren't, uh, weren't the kind of thing that would scare you a little bit, but you could be towed to shore or whatever, you know your boat's going to float. That When your boat capsizes, you don't have a bilge pump. You're going to be dead. You're going to die. And Jesus is sleeping in the middle of this storm where the waves are lapping over the side of the boat, Jesus is sleeping and his disciples are worried. They're trying to get the sails to pull him to, to land as quickly as possible, but they're worried that they aren't, aren't going to survive the night. And finally, they wake Jesus up and says, why don't you care that we're going to die? And Jesus says something similar 
to what he says to Peter when he tries to walk on water. He says, O ye of little faith. And uh, when we talk about that episode of walking on water, we'll discuss that gentle rebuke. But what we're talking about now is Jesus' authority to command. So Jesus arises and he says, peace be still. And immediately the storm ends and they and they arrive where they're going. And the disciples say that to themselves, what manner of man is this? So it's an interesting question because man does not command and the storm ends. Man does not command and the waves cease. But that is what Jesus does. So the question is not, what, what kind of man is this? What they're saying is, how can a man do this? Jesus must be more. They're, by implication, they're saying, Jesus must be more than a man. Jesus is more than a man. They're realizing what this Roman centurion already knew. And so these two, the, the, somebody who's not a Jew and these observant Jews, Jesus' close disciples, are put into close contrast where one knew something, he'd recognized it just from perhaps not even ever meeting Jesus, just from the legends about him. And these other had been these others had been with Jesus, they believed as he believed, and had not recognized it. So very interesting contrast. And the 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 ability to command the waters, that this would have summoned up in them uh, all of these images from the Old Testament. So the the first would have been the very first page of the Bible is the, the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And God commanding, God saying, let there be light, you know, let the earth arise from the waters. God saying the word and then the waters obeying is the nature of God. It is what God does when he, crea- when he creates the world. This is how he does it, is, he, is he's over the waters, he stretches forth his hand, he says the word, and then the earth takes shape according to what he says. Jesus calming the storm in this way is a powerful testimony that he was the creator God. And that's why they said to themselves, what manner of man is this? And this idea of commanding the waters and having them obey would have also summoned up all the images that we've talked about with water when we talked about the baptism of Jesus. Crossing through the Red Sea on dry ground, crossing through the River Jordan, but also from the, I believe it's the 11th chapter of Isaiah, when uh, Isaiah prophesies that Israel will be led back into the promised land and all of the rivers will dry up and God will command and it will dry up. And something that came into my mind was when at the end of the book of Job, so Job suffers all that he suffers and the whole time his friends are saying to him, Job, it's obvious that you have brought this on yourself. God doesn't punish people the way you've been punished unless they're wicked. So just admit your wickedness. And Job is saying, no, I'm not wicked. I know I've been righteous, but I want God to, I want God to account for what he's done to me. I want, I want God to explain why, being righteous, I have been tormented so much. And God, at the end of the book of Job, says, Job, let me show you a few things. Here, are my, here is the vast extent of my creations. And as, the, as sort of the exclamation point on all that God shows Job is the, is the seas themselves and the depths of the sea and this monster, this legendary monster, Leviathan, that lives in the depths. And the, the Hebrews saw the sea as something so wild and dangerous and unpredictable, this turbulent 
uh, force that if in, in the heart, in the blink of an eye, in a heartbeat, you could be sucked under and never seen again. So the, the sea was something that only God could command. And the idea that a man would stretch forth his hand and have power over the sea, that's God's realm. This is, this is God's proof of how powerful he is, is he says to Job, I command the sea. Look, I'm, I'm not just the person that commands all these other things that creates all of the creations that I've shown you, but I also command the sea. And that was the, the icing on the cake where Job said, oh my gosh, I, who am I? I've been questioning God himself when he saw that God was testifying about his ability to stretch forth his hand and command the sea. So that's how powerful this is, and that's why Matthew, so we now know why Matthew has arranged things in the order that he's arranged them. They may or may not have happened chronologically this way, but thematically they're joined as a testimony that Jesus is God, and Jesus' purity is as infectious as the purity of the God of Isaiah chapter 6, that took this coal from the altar and cleansed Isaiah's lips. So these these two, again, we see from Matthew this powerful witness, not only by the words that he says, but the order in which he, he puts his testimonies that Jesus is Yahweh. He's the God of the Old Testament. It's so clear in every, in every chapter of Matthew that that's what he's testifying to. Now, just a couple of more episodes we'll go into. And, and this is something that I hope you'll read this passage in Jesus the Christ to learn a little more about it. But Jesus, when he calls Matthew, he says, follow me. Matthew immediately rises up, and then he hosts Jesus that night in his home, and he, and he, and he feeds him dinner. And to this dinner come all of the, the other publicans. I mean, Matthew can't have friends among normal Jews because publicans are so hated. And, and it's so interesting that in this dinner would also come a lot of sinners. Now, it's implied that, um, and it's implied in other places, that the group publicans and sinners includes all kinds of people that have terrible sins. They're not just uh, people who who the Pharisees see as sinners. They're actual sinners. And so this would have included uh, sex workers, it would have included people who steal, It it would have included some real sinners, criminals. And... That's, that should tell you how hated the publicans were, that the publicans are willing to invite into their home those people who are not only spiritually, but physically or ritually impure, because that ritual impurity would have spread to them. And so um, the, they're willing to have this dinner, all the publicans are willing, that even though some of them, like Matthew, may have been observant Jews, they're willing to spend their time among sinners because they themselves are also outcast. And as we learned in the Sermon on the Mount, these are the people of whom the kingdom is going to be built. It's not people who are perfect. It's people who are poor in heart. It's those people who are meek. They've been cast out. It's exactly those people who have the, the opposite attitude from the Pharisees, which is, look at me. I am, I am the person who I fast twice in the week. I pay tithes of all that I possess. You know, I'm so grateful that I'm not as other men or even as this publican or even as this man sinning, right? You, you may remember the story that Jesus tells of two men that go to church and one who prays this and the other one who sits in the back and says, God, be merciful unto me, a sinner. This is probably the biggest lesson that Jesus teaches. 
he sends his disciples forth, and the lesson that they're teaching, he every time whatever Jesus is, is preaching is mentioned, he talks about the kingdom. And that is a reference back to the Beatitudes, because that's when Jesus was teaching the good news of the kingdom. He's saying, here are the people, here are the subjects of the kingdom, those who have been cast out. It's not something you have to strive for. It's basically a status that is inflicted upon you. You feel low down because you recognize that you can't do everything that you should do. You are not equal to the task of living up to the commandments of God. And maybe it's been driven home to you in such a way that you're a leper or that other people have cast you out. Or maybe you've tried and you've spent all your money on physicians and you just can't do it. But those are the people of whom the kingdom will be comprised. And so here he is having this dinner and something so so wonderful happens. The, the, the Pharisees and scribes say, why is your master, you know, if, if he knows so much, why is he spending so much time around publicans and sinners? And Jesus says, uh, go, uh, those, who are, those who are sick are the only ones who need a doctor, not the people who are well. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. This is a reference to the book of Hosea. For I'm not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now there is, there is no doubt that Jesus is not calling uh, and well, he's not sincerely calling the f- scribes and Pharisees righteous. What he's doing is he's pointing, he's pointing out in a uh, satirical way their perception of themselves as righteous. And this is made clear in, in Jesus the Christ. It's made clear in C.S. Lewis. What Jesus is saying is, I can't help people who don't recognize their unrighteousness. And in so many places in the scriptures, he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. It's those people who refuse to see that their righteousness, as, as he said in the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you can't enter into the kingdom of heaven. So what he's saying here is the fact that you think you're righteous means that I can't call you to repentance and therefore my this this healing power that I have, this dynamin, it can't, it can't exert its virtue. No virtue can't go out of me into you because you don't arrive at my feet and you don't lay hold of the, the tassel on my garment. You don't ask me, uh, Lord, if you, if you want to, you can make me clean. And therefore, I can't stretch forth my hand and touch you and say to you, I want to be clean. And that's the, that's the message that Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, but he's saying it in such a way that they think they've been complimented. And it's, it's, so, it's so awesome, and at the same time, it's so sad. And if you're, if you're humble enough, uh, you can look at this and you can see yourselves on both sides of this dinner. You can see yourself in one of these publicans and sinners that's eating with Jesus, but also hopefully you can see yourself in the scribes and Pharisees who have such, who have such hypocrisy about other people's righteousness and, and level of sin. And hopefully that will be a prick in your heart to repent and to have the attitude that these people who are healed have, that have the attitude of Isaiah when he's, he finds himself in the presence of God rather than the attitude that uh, I'm, I'm grateful I'm not as other men. I'm grateful that I'm not like this, this publican. Now the ultimate manifestation of the Savior's willingness to reach out is when he 
reaches the home of Jairus. So he's on the, he's on the way to Jairus' home when the woman with the issue of blood touches his garment. And then he, he arrives in Jairus' home. He has everyone wait outside. And part of the reason that he doesn't want it to be known what he's about to do is we find out when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead because that act of raising someone from the dead is so undeniable that it invites the hostility, the open, the murderous hostility of all of the chief priests and Jews. So he's about to raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. Again, there's nothing, even a, even a leper is not as impure as a dead body. And and so let's, let's examine that Jesus, the ways in which Jesus touches people, and this is physical touch. He touches a leper. He touches Peter's mother-in-law who's sick and lying down. He, he, a woman touches the hem of his garment. He touches the eyes of the blind and opens them up. And here he touches this girl and says, daughter, arise. And so he, Jesus reaches into our impurities and his power is such the, the nature of him being who he is is such that it pulls us out of our impurities, even death. And obviously this is a spiritual message. The, the implications are sort of clear, but if you ponder this, you can realize that he can reach even into our deepest spiritual death, even into the most impure. And he doesn't, he's not worried about him becoming impure. Jesus never thinks about that. And so we, when we arrive at the throne of God to say our prayer for uh, petition for forgiveness, we often think that we're not worthy to offer this and that God is separated himself from us. But what we see here in these chapters is that people just need to arrive in front of Jesus. There's an interesting talk that has been going around social media the last couple of weeks, and it's by Elder Corbridge, who uh, also used to be in my ward, uh, and he is uh, an amazing speaker and a very profound thinker. And this talk is called Stand Forever. And he talks about the many ways in which modern creation, just all creation, is a miracle. He talks about how we look around and we think that certain things would be a miracle. But he says, Elder Corbridge says, that it wouldn't be any more miraculous than what we already have. God's creation itself is the miracle. And the, the reason I bring this up is, I recommend that talk to you, but the reason I bring this up is, Jesus uses the performance of miracles in Matthew as proof that he's willing and able to forgive sin. And so if what Elder Corbridge says is true, that all creation is a miracle, then what we, what we most need in our lives, let's face it, is evidence that God cares about us. Not that God can forgive sin, but as this leper felt, that God's willing to forgive sin. And Elder, Elder Corbridge basically testified, we have that proof all around us that God can perform miracles. And now we have Jesus closing the loop and saying, when I perform a miracle, the point of that miracle is to convince you that I'm willing and able to forgive your sins. And then he forgives them. So we can look all around us, and by this logic, we can know that we are good enough for God. We can arrive at his throne. We can fall at his feet, worship him, ask for forgiveness, and Jesus will reach into our impurity and pull us out of it. <clears throat> now, I wish we had time to talk about the... Uh, there's an important lesson that Jesus teaches when he talks about um, the new bottles and the new clothing. You don't patch you don't patch a new garment or an old garment with new cloth, and you don't put new wine in old bottles. Um, it's a powerful testimony of the need for the New Testament. And uh, 
I wish we had time to talk about that, but it was important enough to me to take all of our time to talk about what we have done. And the final episode I want to go into is this man with the palsy that's brought unto Jesus. And in the book of uh, in the book of Matthew, it doesn't really talk about the exact way in which he's brought this man is brought unto him. But in Mark, we read that he's lowered through the roof, and it's such a wonderful story because. Uh, these friends of this man with the palsy, they love him so much that they will not stop at anything to get him to Jesus. And I think that's such a powerful lesson. They know that Jesus has the healing touch that he needs. And when they get to the door and there's just such oppressive crowd that they can't get this, um, they can't get this friend of theirs through the crowd, through the door, in, in, through the room, all the way to the feet of Jesus so that he can heal him. And this guy with the palsy is, is incapable of pressing his way through. But his friends are so determined that he come unto Jesus that they carry him onto the roof and lower him down so that he's at the feet of the Savior. And then the first thing Jesus says, so that's one lesson, and that's an amazing lesson. And then the first thing Jesus says is, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. So Jesus, again, somebody has arrived at his feet, and he says, uh, as, and, and please go back and read Jeremiah 31 again, 31 through 34. Uh, sorry, that's chapter 31, verse 31 through 34. And then read the, towards the end of Ezekiel 36, and understand that what God wants to do with his people of the new covenant is he wants to change them so that they'll be obedient. And... Uh, that's what Jesus is doing right here. And the way that he does it is by forgiving sins. So this is, this is Jesus, again, fulfilling such a powerful promise in the Old Testament. And the first thing he says is, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. And all of the scribes are saying, Oh, blah, 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 blah. You know, who has, who has, what blasphemy is this? Who has power to forgive sins but God only? So right there, the, the, the fact that Matthew includes that question tells you that Matthew is again testifying to who Jesus is. Who has power to forgive sins but God only? And Jesus knows what they're saying, and he says, I want, I want you to understand just how important what, what my work is doing. I want you to know who I am. And so I'm going to ask you, what's, what's harder, to forgive sin or to just say the word, and this man is healed? And he gives them a moment to think about that. And they're thinking, well, I, I don't know. It seems like... Uh, they're both equally hard, or maybe one's harder than the other. We don't quite get the answer. And then Jesus says, I want you to know I have the power to forgive sin. I want you to understand, number one, that you can be forgiven. Number two, I want you to know who I am. And number three, I want you to understand that God wants to forgive you. And so I'm going to testify of all of these things. I've already told this man he's forgiven, and now I'm going to show you that what my forgiveness that I just gave him was real. It wasn't just me saying the words. It was me actually forgiving those sins. And the way I'm going to show you is by healing his illness. But healing his illness was not the point. Forgiving the sins was the point. God saying, here's a person in front of me. Here's my child. He's arrived at my feet. You've done the hard part. Your sins are forgiven. The hard part is just getting here. The hard part is not you becoming perfect. The hard part is not you arising up, taking up your bed and walking. The hard part was you arriving at the feet of Jesus and being willing to humble yourself and say, as Isaiah said, wow, I'm impure. I recognize it and I recognize I'm powerless over it and I surrender it to Jesus. 
And that holy God living in the temple, sitting in the mercy seat, is also that burning coal that comes from the altar. And when I arrive at his feet, he touches me. And he touches me just once. And I'm immediately purified. And my job after that is to recognize, is not to fix myself, but is to recognize how purified I've been by the touch of Jesus. And just to know it. And then maybe later I can be one of those friends who, who says, I've got, I've got somebody who's sick of the palsy. And the only hope for him is to have Jesus in his life. And so I don't care that the door is crowded. I don't care that it's really hard to get to Jesus. I'm going to take him up on the roof. I'm going to get some other people with me. And we're going to lower him through the tiles. We're going to get some rope and we're going to tie his bed. We're going to tie rope to the four corners of his bed. We're going to do whatever it takes to get this person to the feet of Jesus. So maybe one day we're the palsy, we're the afflicted of the palsy. One day we're the leper. And one day we're the woman with an issue of blood. One day we're the friend. But hopefully never we're the publican or the, the Pharisees and the scribes who say, we're the righteous ones. We don't need a physician. I hope we can all recognize, number one, our need for that physician, for that wonderful doctor that Jesus is. And number two, that we can come to him and say, if you want to, you can make me clean. Because his reply is always the same. I do want to. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. 